subscribe to stay up to date. Episodes drop every other Monday. Welcome to the Matt Watch That Podcast, the place for reviews, rants, and randomness. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to watch a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. To join in on the conversation, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, in the first season of the podcast, I ranted about how I don't like sports talk, people who don't have an athletic bone in their body, criticizing baseball players for swinging at a curveball in the dirt. But it's not my least favorite subject. That would be car talk. I honestly don't understand with the obsession with things that go vroom vroom. I played with Matchbox cars growing up. I had the slot cars with the make your own race track. We made them go up the wall, round the loop-de-loop, and occasionally if you press the remote too hard, they'd fly off the track and end up underneath your bed. So I get it. They're fun. But I never got to the point where I wanted to transfer that to life. And I certainly never got to the point where I wanted to talk about axles, pistons, and horsepower. But I think it could be because I was born on the cusp of Generation X and Millennial, and while I relate more to Gen Xers, I do have the mentality of Millennials, especially when it comes to learning basic life skills. Why should I learn how to change a tire when I could just call the auto club? And to try and prove this point, people always give you ridiculous scenarios. What if you were in a desert, miles away from the next town, without any cell towers? When would that ever happen? And why would I put myself in that situation? That has Texas Chainsaw Massacre written all over it. I'm not looking to be a victim in the next true crime docuseries on Netflix. But I wasn't eager to get my license either. I didn't want to spend my 17th birthday in line at the DMV. My friends were always willing to drive, so I would give them gas money and enjoy the ride. I just didn't like driving when I was younger. GPS hadn't been invented yet, and you still had to navigate the Rand McNally Road Atlas, so I would get lost very easily. And I never went on highways because, at the time, all the signs had were numbers. This was before I knew I had dyscalculia, and could never memorize where I was going. Think about it. You take the 204 to 35, then you get off at exit 70S to Route 62. That would send my brain spinning as if I were solving for X. That's not to say that I don't like cars or driving. Now that I've been commuting into the city for about 15 years, it is fun getting behind the wheel of a car. And if I'm alone on a little stretch of highway, yeah, I'll put the pedal to the metal. Sure. I also like playing Beat the GPS. If it says I should arrive at my destination at 2.15 and I get there at 2.13, I feel that's an accomplishment. While I only consider cars useful from getting to point A to point B, I have to admit that I've always loved Mustangs. If I had some extra pocket change, that would be my car. There's just something about the look that really revs my engine. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of 5 stars. 
One star is skip it. Two stars watch at your own risk. Three stars standard fare. Four stars worth checking out. And five stars must see. Now, if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. On this episode of the podcast, I'll be reviewing The Fast and the Furious from 2001. So how'd I miss it? Well, as I just ranted, I'm not into cars, so the premise doesn't attract me to begin with. But also, my ex was into Vin Diesel, so I avoided all movies with him in it. It was directed by Rob Cohen, who helmed Daylight, the scariest movie for a tri-state commuter, Triple X, Alex Cross, and episodes of Private Eye, 30-something, and Miami Vice. The screenplay was co-written by David Iyer, who scribed U571, Dark Blue, Fury, and Suicide Squad. Eric Bergquist, which is his only credit, and Gary Scott Thompson, who also wrote the screen story and is the creator of the series Las Vegas. Vin Diesel stars as Dominic Toretto. He was born in Alameda County, California, along with a twin brother, Paul. His family moved to New York City, and he made his theater debut off-Broadway at the age of seven in the play Dinosaur Door at the theater for the new city. He initially broke into the establishment with the intention to vandalize it, but was caught by the artistic director who decided to offer him the part. He started working as a bouncer at the age of 17 and had struggled to secure roles, so he started to raise funds to write, direct, and produce his own short films. His first, Multifacial, dealt with being a multiracial actor. It was screened at the Cannes Festival. Two years later, he made his feature-length debut in a movie called Strays, which gained entry into the Sundance Festival. Steven Spielberg took notice and cast him in Saving Private Ryan. A year later, he lent his voice to the titular character in The Iron Giant. His breakthrough would be as Riddick in the film Pitch Black. The success led to The Fast and the Furious and Triple X. He was also cast as the voice of Groot in Guardians of the Galaxy. His movies have grossed almost $5 billion worldwide, and he received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 2013. Paul Walker portrays Brian O'Connor. He was born in Glendale, California. He began modeling when he was a toddler, following in the footsteps of his mother. He started appearing in commercials at the age of two. He was cast in Highway to Heaven before landing a role on Throb, where he appeared in 23 episodes. He was cast as Brandon Collins on The Young and the Restless for 32 episodes during the 1992-1993 season. Starting with his second feature film, Pleasantville, he had a string of hits with Varsity Blues, She's All That, and The Skulls. After being cast in The Fast and the Furious, he appeared in Timeline, Into the Blue, Eight Below, and Flags of Our Fathers. This is something to look out for. The fight scene between Paul Walker and Matt Schultz was completely improvised when the choreography they practiced didn't feel right on the day of the shoot. So let's jump into it. The Fast and the Furious starts with a shipping container with 1.6 millions of electronics from China being loaded onto the trailer of a Rogers semi-truck. In transport, three black Honda Civic coupes with green neon box in the semi-truck and hijack its contents. The next morning, Brian Earl Spillner goes on a trial run with his Mitsubishi Eclipse, topping out at 140 miles per hour before spinning out. He stops at Toretto's Market and Cafe, where Mia Toretto works. She knows his order as he's come in every day for the past three weeks. 
A team of street racers park and enter the establishment. Letty Ortiz, the girlfriend of Dominic, owner of Toretto's Market and Cafe. Jesse, a mechanic and designer with ADD. Leon, the police lookout. And Vince, a hot-headed street racer who's jealous of the attention that's being paid to Mia by Brian. He decides to confront Spillner about it, and they end up fighting, which is broken up by Dominic, the leader of the team. Brian heads off to his job at the Racer's Edge, a high-performance auto parts store. He tells Harry that he needs NOS, nitrous oxide, to boost the speed of his Mitsubishi Eclipse. That night, the local street racers get together. Dominic arrives and announces that it's one race, $2,000 buy-in, winner takes all. Brian says that he doesn't have the cash, but is willing to offer the pink slip to his car. Dominic agrees, and the racers block off the street. Leon listens to the police scanners and tells them that they're in the clear. Dominic, Brian, Edwin, and Danny Amato line up and race. In the home stretch, Toretto and Spillner are neck and neck until Brian spins out. The victory is short-lived as the police are headed their way to break up the race. Toretto momentarily loses the cops as he parks his car in a garage, but he's recognized and stopped on foot. Spillner picks him up, and they end up losing their tail. The next day, on his way to work, Brian is pulled over and arrested by police. But it's only for show, because it's revealed that he's actually an undercover cop, tasked with solving the truck hijackings, where Dominic is their prime suspect. Here's a quote without context. Why don't you girls just pack it up before I leave treadmarks on your face? The Fast and the Furious is a popcorn flick. Nothing more, nothing less. It's Hot Rod Gang, American Graffiti, the Cannonball Run on steroids. It's flashy and loud. The acting is fairly stiff. Dialogue very cheesy in places. I mean, I audibly ugged at some lines. But I also went into this knowing it's not Shakespeare. I thought the special effects were pretty bad. I know they're supposed to be going at high speeds, but it felt super unrealistic to watch. And I really disliked the shots when the camera would go inside the car parts and watch the pistons pumping and etc. Just felt overblown. But, you know, if you're a car guy, maybe you're into that. I mean, overall, it's fine. And there have been like nine more films, so obviously this has an audience. And I'll be honest, this is the type of movie that's kind of up my alley, but it just didn't check all my boxes. Now for a little trivial trivia. Michelle Rodriguez and Jordana Brewster didn't have driver's licenses prior to the production of the film. The Fast and the Furious was produced by Neil H. Moritz. It was filmed in Echo Park, Malibu, Silver Lake, Dodger Stadium, and Beverly Hills, California. The cinematography was captured by Erickson Kaur, whose filmography includes Dancing at the Blue Iguana, Daredevil, Payback, and the remake of Point Break. It was edited by Peter Honus, who worked on Highlander, Mr. Baseball, Six Degrees of Separation, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, and was nominated for a Best Film Editing Oscar at the 1998 Academy Awards for L.A. Confidential. The score was composed by B.T., who wrote the music for Go, Driven, Monster, and Dark Places. The soundtrack featured songs by Live, Ja Rule, Limp Bizkit, and Ludacris, who would appear in the sequel. The runtime is 1 hour 46 minutes. It had a budget of $38 million and grossed $207 million at the box office. I give it 3.5 stars out of 5. If you've seen The Fast and the Furious and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along, each episode, I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. 
It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there will be a playlist called Matt Watch That Playback. We're counting down to opening day, so I wanted to celebrate all things baseball. I've been watching those spring training games and enjoying the new rules. I never liked the shift, so I'm glad it's banned. Teams will still try and find a way around it. During a Joey Gallo at bat, they took an outfielder and moved them to shallow right field, which is fine because it vacated all of left field. So if he happened to hit it that way, the team gets penalized for moving a player out of position. The pitch clock has absolutely changed the game. I think the shorter lengths are great, but I actually think it's too fast now. When the broadcast team can't show an instant replay between pitches or batters, that's when you lose the enjoyment and entertainment of the presentation of a game. The only rules that I wish didn't carry over to the season are the ones that force teams into certain situations. I don't think that relief pitcher should have to face three batters. It has nominally sped up the game, because you're not bringing in pitchers for a one-and-done at-bat, but it doesn't feel necessary. I don't like pitchers are limited as to how many times they can throw over to first base. If it proves that it does allow for more opportunities for players to steal bases, I might change my mind on that one. That's one of the more exciting plays. I mean, watching Jose Reyes on the Mets stealing 50, 60, 70 bases was a lot of fun. Speaking of the Mets... It's a nice change of pace having your hopes shattered in March, then in October. Losing Edwin Diaz for the season is not the way you want to start out, but it's still a formidable team, and I'm optimistic about their playoff chances. And I'm not talking about wild card. I'm talking about winning the division and being in there for round one. So I've selected a couple of clips that feature baseball catches and rare plays. They're all available in the Matt Watch That Playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about Last Man Standing. Created by Jack Burdett, who started as a writer on Mad About You and became a producer on Frasier, Just Shoot Me, 30 Rock, and Modern Family. It stars Tim Allen as Mike Baxter, the director of marketing at Outdoor Man, a sporting goods store, where he works with Ed Alzate, the founder and manager, portrayed by Hector Elizondo of Chicago Hope fame, and Kyle Anderson, a daft employee, played by Christoph Sanders. At home, Mike lives with his wife, Vanessa, a geologist, and three daughters, Kristen, a teenage mother, the fashion-conscious Mandy, and athletic Eve. The Baxter clan is made up of Nancy Travis, Amanda Fuller, Molly Ephraim, and breakout Caitlin Dever, who appeared in J. Edgar, Beautiful Boy, and Booksmart. As a side note, her father played the voice of Barney in direct-to-video movies in the early 2000s. Similar to the format of Home Improvement, it's filmed before a live studio audience and features scenes either in the house or at the store. It's more politically charged, especially starting in the second season, Mike's conservative views are constantly at odds with his grandson's father, Ryan Vogelson, who plays a prototypical progressive. I think the humor is a little more biting than its predecessor, and in some cases funnier. It addresses more social issues and talks about the elephant in the room, presenting both sides of the argument. It does make it more timely. In 10-15 years, I'm not sure it will still have the rewatch appeal of Home Improvement. There are a few cameo appearances from Tim's former castmates. 
Richard Korn, Patricia Richardson, and Jonathan Taylor Thomas all have roles in multiple episodes. The series ran for six seasons from 2011 to 2017, before being unceremoniously cancelled by ABC, despite it being the second highest rated sitcom. Now, conspiracy theorists believe that it's because of Tim Allen's conservative views, which of course raised the ire of Republicans to shout, CANCEL CULTURE AND WOKE! But the truth is, the show is produced by 20th Century Fox, and licensed to broadcast on ABC. This was prior to their merger, so at the time, ABC was making money from commercial revenue only. Since they didn't own the rights to the show, they earned nothing from syndication. With the rising production costs, they canceled the show. It was picked up by Fox for an additional three seasons, though some of the cast members moved on to different projects in the gap between cancellation and revival. In total, Last Man Standing was on for nine seasons, 194 episodes from 2011 to 2021. That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed, or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Head over to MattSarosky.com for the latest news and updates, and come back next time for the reviews, rants, and randomness. It was directed by Rob Cohen, who helmed Daylight, the scariest movie for a tri-state commuter, Triple X, Alex Cross, and episodes of Private Eye, 30-something, and Mammy Vice. Mammy Vice.